in the absence of knowing where to go myself, I turned to the wider church and looked to the appointed readings today for most Protestant churches that follow a, a more um, prescribed reading of Scripture called the lectionary. And as it turns out, this is the story that was appointed for reading today. And as I read it through, I only needed to read it through once to know that I was led to these words. I invite you to join me. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the disciples followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. And he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Well, I'm going to begin with a word we don't like to talk about, but it seems to dominate our lives, and that word is scarcity. Uh, most of you know by now that in my previous life as a student, uh, before I sort of turned uh, correctly in the direction that God was calling me to in ministry, I had studied finance and intended to go out and maximize shareholder wealth for, for clients who are willing to pay me to do so. And Infatuated with the, with the process of learning, I, I learned a great deal. Of course, the entry point in that course of study was economics. And sometimes we don't even understand what economics is at the, at the macro level. And I'll never forget the, the definition that was given to me by Kenneth Elzinga, who is my economics 201 professor, a remarkable man in a lot of ways. Um, also a very devout Christian, and many of the students knew him more for his Christianity than his professorial prowess. Um, he would go in and talk to students one-on-one. -on -one. They'd visit him in office hours. He said inevitably they would sort of pour out their hearts and their problems because there's something about Christian souls. Sometimes they just have it written right across here. I'll listen without interruption. And he would say, I, I don't know how to help you solve this problem directly, but I if you'll permit me, I, I know I can pray for you. And students who claimed and identified with faith and many who did not would sit in his office and pray with Professor Elzinga. He was also a remarkable teacher. And one of the things that he taught us in the very first lectures were, was this, 
that economics, as we study it, and even as we talk about it, is both science and art in a lot of ways. On the science side, it's a social science. So it studies our human behavior as the relationship between the given ends that we desire for a society and the scarce means that we have that might have alternative uses. So basically, any given community has a certain amount of stuff. We have a certain number of goals, and we can't kind of have any more raw materials. So how are we going to distribute and use these scarce resources to achieve our ends? So all the different economic systems in the world are basically sort of one way or other of expressing that. But what's gotten my attention in recent time, particularly as I've gone deeper and deeper in my Christian faith and in maturity in my Christian faith, is that word scarcity. Scarce resources. Whether we like it or not, we are formed by a mindset in our society that's largely built on scarcity. And sometimes that comes to the forefront. Walk back in time with me to about the year 2020. Oh, let's say March. And let's say you ran out of, oh, I don't know, toilet paper. Do you remember those days? There was a run on toilet paper. Lysol. Hand soap. All the things we might have taken for granted before all of a sudden became scarce and precious resources. I remember our friend, Laura McGinnis, when she was already receiving treatments, she was post-surgical, ran out of toilet paper. She couldn't get out in public. And I happened to be at Sam's Club and saw, you know, just one of a few that were left there, ran over and got it. And you would have thought I brought her a million dollars. Scarcity. You remember those days. The problem, though, wasn't that the country had run out of toilet paper. There was plenty of toilet paper to go around. The problem was people were stockpiling it. Garages full of those things that we might have allowed ourselves to work through a little longer. What drives that scarcity mindset beyond just making sure I have all the Charmin I need? Of course, it's fear and it's anxiety. And we were saturated in it in those times. And people made their way to to gather all of those things up. Scarcity, when it comes to the forefront, tells us a lot about what we're afraid of. The crowds that sought Jesus out in our story today knew what scarcity was about. Many of them were likely hungry. They were hungry for daily bread. There were far more folks who were living below the poverty line than we could imagine today. But even more than that, they were also hungry for for hope. Because these were a people who had, for years, for decades, anticipated the deliverance of God from the oppressive regime that had occupied them. And so living there under Roman rule had led them to that place of hoping for, praying for, and anticipating God's anointed one to come and deliver them from that state. Some were even starting to whisper that this one named Jesus who was making his way through was in fact God's 
anointed one. They were hungry. And hope was scarce. But to catch you up with where we are today in the story, we, we first encounter Jesus. And to the point that has come to us now at the beginning of chapter 14, uh, Jesus had been healing and teaching about the kingdom of heaven and making his way through the villages and working wonders. But then we find at the beginning of chapter 14 that Jesus' cousin John, by a miscarriage of justice, is beheaded. And when Jesus receives word about this, that is what leads us to verse 13. When he heard about these things, that is the execution of his cousin, stricken with grief and having to think through at a deep level all that has happened and all that it might cost him to carry on, he retreats to what, of what the NIV translates as a solitary place. In Greek, it is a desert place. Jesus, of course, knows something about deserts. After his baptism, he made his way into the desert, into the wilderness, and there fasted and prayed. He was tested and tempted, and there his own identity as a Messiah of God and his own mission were crystallized, were strengthened, were sharpened, were focused. So Jesus returns to that solitary place in his grief, in his deep thoughts. And there in that desert place, with everything else taken away, he is met by the crowds. He can't even put foot on the ground from the boat he has taken there before the crowds have already anticipated his arrival and they meet him there. You have been in that place where you are so excavated in your grief and in your exhaustion and in your burnout. All you want to do is retreat to that solitary place. And even if the needs are, are worthy, even if the concerns are high, you just have nothing to give. That's how I imagine Jesus to be at this point. And yet, in compassion, he turns to each and every one who is sick and hurting and continues his ministry of healing. There in the wilderness. Now, even beyond Jesus' life, the wilderness is a profound place, biblically speaking. The Bible has something of a love-hate relationship in the way it describes the wilderness. The wilderness is at the same time a place of peril. Its name, even, it's wild. It's full of wild beasts and difficulties. There are no good roads, and it's hard to get from here to there. And as it turns out, you can get lost for 40 years and not find your way. And the wilderness, the desert, is a place where God tends to show up in compelling ways in the lives of those who would receive God. Moses, of course, is one of those people. And when Moses, after shepherding the people of, of Israel through the wilderness, through the desert for 40 years, begins speaking and teaching the Torah, the covenant of God, to the next generation, those who would actually enter into promised land. In the book of Deuteronomy, he says, remember how your Lord God led you all the way through the wilderness 
these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep the Lord's commands. There it is. There in the wilderness, it's a place to humble you, which it inevitably does, and to test, to prove, to look beyond the superficialities and go deep into your soul and say, what's really there? As I've said before, it's like squeezing a sponge and you can't fake what it's been soaking in (laughs) once you squeeze it. Because whatever comes out is, in fact, what it's been soaking in. But Moses doesn't stop there. God humbled you, he says, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. And there, the gospel is hiding, in a sense, in plain sight. God, there in the wilderness, in our humble, tested, hungry state, God feeds you. God feeds you there. And today, we gather as a church in the name of the One who nourishes us in our wilderness too. That's the news I want us to hang on to. Jesus, the bread of life, is feeding us in an anxious time. He's feeding all of us. And there is baskets full to spare. But I am kind of getting ahead of myself. Sometimes, um, sometimes we, we want to rush through a problem just because it it makes us feel uncomfortable. There is a deep problem in this story. And the problem is this. Uh, The crowds are there. It's getting late. Jesus, of course, has expended energy he probably didn't have on healing them. And so the disciples urge Jesus, just release them. Send them on. Let them find something to eat. And Jesus tells them there is no reason to send them on. You give them something to eat. How? How, Lord? We don't have anything. But, and the disciples, they produce whatever food they can find. In this huge crowd of people, some loaves and some fish, all they can see as they look on this great crowd, on this experience, is the scarcity. They see what they don't have. The disciples only perceive that gap between what they don't have, their own limitations, and the resources that Jesus is now calling out of them. We have nothing but a few loaves and a couple of fish. And I hope I'm not the only one who can identify with the disciples in that scarcity mindset. In any season when we find ourselves uncertain, a little tender, we're going to be more and more aware of what we don't have. And when push comes to shove, we live out the story of our scarcity. No one has to convince us what we don't have. Then Jesus breaks into this sort of anxious echo chamber of anxiety and scarcity, and he says, Bring them to me. He's not arguing now with the disciples, and he doesn't argue with us. He invites them, and he invites us to bring everything to him, surrender it all into his hands. But even now, I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. 
I want us to sit with the problem just a little longer and not be too hasty with our discomfort. Sometimes it is in our discomfort that we learn necessary lessons. We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. They told Jesus that. And of course he says, give them something to eat. Five loaves and two fish. It's a powerful, almost kind of poetic image, I think, for some of the days of my life. Have you ever had a, a five loaves and two fish kind of day? Or week? Or season? Think about the day my knee wrenched one way and the rest of my body went the other way on the wrestling mat and all of the therapy and all the surgery and everything that followed after that permanently altered my gait. It took away a piece of something that, that I identified with. It reduced my activity level. It did a lot. That was a loaves and fish kind of day. I can think about a time when I hurt a friend so badly that there was nothing I could do or say to make it right. And when you realize how much you lack in being able to amend. Five loaves, two fish, that's all I've got. I think about the amount of energy it took simply to, to push the buttons on the phone. Now, this is for some of you. They used to have this thing called a telephone, and it had a wire, and it ran right into the wall. And you could pick it up and hold it up to your ear. But to push the buttons on that and call my friend Janet just to hear what the latest report from the oncologist was. Janet was my right-hand woman in youth ministry. She was my kind of dialed-in, always youth chaperone. The girls loved her. I loved her. And I didn't want to hear what I knew was coming. It's a loaves and fishes kind of day. Now, over and over again, being a pastor makes me feel like a five loaves and two fishes kind of person. Where I look at the circumstances that confront each and every one of you, and I struggle to find within myself or around me what I could do or say or provide that might be helpful. It's an exhausting season of self-examination. So much of the time, I think we spend our lives a little overwhelmed or powerless or hopeless, that, that in some way something's being asked of us that we can't handle, that we can't provide or meet with, and you don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. It's some mixture, for me, of sad and mad and tired. And the desert here, it's not a place of retreat and solitude. It's lonely, and it's deserted, and it's getting dark. And like the disciples, we just want to send everything away. Let them fend for themselves. Take care of themselves. And it's not just because I don't think I have enough now. It doesn't even seem that I am enough. Now, if anything I've said resonates with you, hold on to that. There's good news. If none of what I've said resonates with you, that's okay. There's still good news. You know, I know the Koinonia class talked about C.S. Lewis this morning, right? You read Mere Christianity, or at least gave a book report. It's an 
innovative sort of Sunday school time. They're doing book reports on great Christian books for the next eight weeks or so. I, if you're not already engaged in a discipleship group, give Koinonia a try. They have some great books on tap. C.S. Lewis was great friends with J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, they, they were both Christians, and in a circle of writers, they would often talk about faith and how it intersected with their love of literature and their writing and their teaching and everything else. And um, I am a huge fan of Tolkien's majestic trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And in that story, the, the protagonist is a little tiny creature named Frodo. And as Frodo, who grew up in a peaceful place, in a very small and out-of-the-way section of Middle-earth, finds himself thrust and propelled on a perilous quest, a quest that ultimately we know the fate of the entire Middle-earth depends, he doesn't feel up for the task. And over and over again, the challenges he faces will confront that trajectory he is on, and he's accompanied by a, a great wizard named Gandalf. And there's this very touching interaction between Gandalf and Frodo. When they find themselves in the heat of a battle and it is not clear, it is not decided, Frodo says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf, stroking his beard, I assume, says this. So do I. And so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. What will you do in the five loaves and two fishes times of your life? What will you do? We can, of course, Spend a moment just to remember what not to do. Let's not sit around waiting for Jesus to magically just give us more bread and fish. I'm not saying Jesus couldn't. I'm just saying that's not how the scriptures and that's not how the history of faith teaches us this sort of thing takes place. It calls for something different. It's, it, it's, it's not even really about the lack of bread and fish anymore anyway. It's really about a lack of vision. Danny opened the door for us, set the table for us in such a great way. It's a lack of vision for our lives and what can happen through our lives. It's a lack of vision about what the great crowd around us represents. It's a lack of vision about the future, a lack of imagination for what could be. It's a lack of compassion for others and a lack of compassion for ourselves. And so for us, to hear this story for all it's worth, it's actually a call to begin to see in a new way. That we need new eyes. We need a new vision. What Jesus is calling out of them when He says, you give them something to eat, is not some abdication of His responsibility or participation in our lives. Instead, it is a call for us to acquire the vision through which He reads us and reads the world and reads its needs because the way he sees is God's own vision. It's a call to begin to trust God differently and to 
see others and to see ourselves with that same potential. So Jesus is now talking about more than stomachs. He's talking about eyes. He's talking about hearts. Jesus and the disciples see that same great crowd and they respond so differently in the moment. Jesus and the disciples represent that same kind of different ways of seeing that Danny talked about. The disciples see the crowd and they say, send them away. We can't handle this. We don't. We've done the math, Jesus, and it's not going to work. And Jesus sees something fundamentally differently. Something their own lenses lack. He says you don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. The crowd begins to focus on their own needs. And then as those needs are met, they begin to make way for more. Jesus sees what can happen if we entrust reach out to those, even if we can't account for every gap that might exist between us and a hurting world. That is our call as a church. Because in calling forth the humble gifts that begin this miraculous story, Jesus receives with gratitude gives thanks to God, breaks it, and gives it. And by the end of the day, everyone is satisfied. When I was a child, the first Bible I received was a New American Standard Bible, a children's edition. It had a picture of Jesus as a good shepherd, and he's, he's holding, he's, uh, Jesus was not a shepherd, as near as we could tell, but they wouldn't be the first time a study Bible took a few liberties. With a little sheep over his shoulder, and my parents, when they inscribed it, of course, wrote my name, wrote the date it was given. And then my mom wrote a verse. And Ted, talk about a life verse. And I've never been able to shake this verse. It was the first verse that was given to me that I committed deeply to memory because it was commended by a mentor of faith. And it was Luke 1.37. With God, all things are possible. Or more literally, nothing is impossible with God. Jesus sees the five loaves. Jesus sees the two fish. Jesus sees our brokenness, our hurt, our lack, our doubt, our pain. And he imagines something new. He imagines possibility. He imagines the possibility of the impossible. You don't need to banish the crowd. Instead, make room for them. And with the eyes of his heart, he can see clearly. Earlier in Matthew, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his disciples, I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food? It's not the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. How much more valuable are you than they? Can any of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? 
See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, it's thrown in the fire, how much more will God clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry asking what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. I wonder what keeps you from seeing and living like that. What would change if you began to see like that? What if you looked at yourself? What if you looked around this room? What if you looked at the world with the eyes of your heart, the heart of Christ? It's Karen Medlin who taught many of us the lesson that every night, no matter what kind of day you've had, you go to bed and say thank you for at least three things. Look at where you are and say thank you. Look at who you're with and say thank you. Look deep within yourself and remember the one who holds your life, who blesses it, who breaks it, shares it like his own and say thank you. And move from that place of scarcity in the wilderness to an abundance that only God can provide. As we go to this time of response, it is with a prayer, not of my own construction, but this one from the Apostle Paul. As we come to this time of response, opening our hands and sharing our gifts, we do so recognizing that there is more at work in your life, that there is a decision or a response you may need to make today in response to what God has placed on your life and on your heart. And if it means taking that first step, setting down your self-reliance and becoming a Jesus-reliant person, or returning to a promise you made to him a long time ago, or something new that's emerging, you need this congregation's help to fulfill, whatever it may be, nothing is impossible with God. I invite you to pray with me. I get down on my knees before the Father, the magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. I ask Him to strengthen you by His Spirit. Not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength. That Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite Him in. And I ask Him that with both feet firmly planted on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of God's love. Reach out and experience the breadth. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. God can do anything, you know. Far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does not do it in the way of the world. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us. His Spirit deeply 
and gently within us. Glory to God in the church. Glory to God in the Messiah, in Jesus. Glory down all the generations. Glory through all millennia. Oh yes. Amen.